Thanks for listening to this teaching from City of Life Church. Check out www.col.tv for more great teachings, service times, and information on upcoming events. Now, let's join the service already in progress. Welcome, everyone, to City of Life Church. I hope you're feeling good today. Welcome those of you that are watching online. So grateful and thankful that you're worshiping with us here today. Our online community is such an important part of who we are as a church. So many people from all over the world, really, uh, worship with us on a regular basis. I have a friend who was different country who was texting me just a moment ago saying, I can't wait to uh, go to church today at City of Life. So it's exciting to uh, see what God is doing and how God is using uh, our, our church to reach people. And um, it's, it's just wonderful. I love, uh, I love this series we're in. I love where we're at in the story of our church and uh, the growth of our church, the development of our church. You guys don't know, my parents, uh, Drs. Gary and Janice Smith, started this church in 1986. And they have been here ever since, really spreading a message of hope, dignity, and esteem for everyone, for all people. Uh, in the early days of the church, when they said that, for all people, they really meant it. And uh, that even was back in the day when uh, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was a pretty, uh, St. Cloud, I'm just going, I don't know if this ain't politically correct, but it was real white back then. I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's just basically churches, there was white churches, black churches, uh, Latino churches. It's like, and, and there wasn't a church that really had multiple things. And, and so in the early days of the church, uh, mom and dad had to really uh, make a stand to make the gospel the central thing, uh, the principle of our church. And there was a lot of families that wanted to leave because families that were different looking than them were, were involved. And, you know, I remember the board of directors came to my dad uh, and they said, you got a lot of, you know, Puerto Ricans that are up there on that stage. And you got black people that are up there on that stage. And, uh, you know, we're going to give you, a, we're going to give you a week to decide what you're going to do or else we're all going to leave. And the board of directors said that in the early days of dad's church, he was just a very young pastor in his thirties. And uh, he said, well, why would you wake a, waste a week of your life trying to figure out what to do? Just leave right now. He said, because this church is about Jesus and we're going to have whoever is here, whoever here that loves the Lord is going to be a part of it. It don't matter if they're white, black, what kind of background, even, even my dad back in the day, you know, uh, a lot of uh, people that had been divorced, even when divorce was not, it was just kind of, that was sort of the thing. You could never do anything in ministry back in the day. My, my parents really were people that restored people that had been hurt uh, in relational issues. So we honor them. Can we take a second to just honor this doctor and Gary, Jan doctors Gary and Janice Smith, my parents for laying that foundation. My wife and I, Amy, are just so honored to continue in that heritage and to try to continue to do a job, great job of being faithful. I think this is our 13th year of, of being senior pastors here at City of Life, and we're honored uh, to do this this uh, for, for the Lord and for you and to share in this this community of, of faith together. Last night was Zoe night, and uh, or Friday night was Zoe night. Or Zoe night, and uh, what a, what an incredible night! I think there was like 500 ladies here. Was anyone here that was there? Make some noise. Let me know. Okay. Ah, oh, sounds like you guys had a lot of fun. So we're proud of our ladies. Had a great time. Uh, and and today we're gonna continue, actually close out our series that is called Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions. And I'm just gonna go ahead and pray before I get started. I'll get right into the series. I've got so much to cover today. I wanna finish and do well. And I believe that the Lord's gonna help me do that. So Father, thank you so much for all these people that are here today. Thank you for this time of worship. I, I thank you, Lord, for this atmosphere that's here today, that there's hope here. Uh, no matter who we are, where we're from, what we've been through, God, I thank you that there's always hope in your name. Lord, I pray today that this would be uplifting. I pray that people that are watching today would find 
uh, encouragement. Lord, that no matter if, what kind of miracle they need, what kind of help they need, I, I thank you, Lord, that you are our helper. Uh, and I just pray that, that there would be miraculous things that take place right now in this, in this room, right now through people watching online, that they look back to this moment and remember the moment that God set them free. We thank you, Jesus, that there's always hope if you're involved. So be involved in every part of what we're doing here today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Uh, something that is... Um, exciting for me is when our team like comes up with a series idea that can cover some unique or different ideas. And I think that this series, uh, Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions has been really fun because for four weeks, we've been able to look at things that culture holds up on a pedestal and kind of makes their God in some way. When we look at these topics of anxiety, uh, of money, of conflict, and today we land on the subject of sex, I think one of the interesting things about these particular topics, and we could go on and on with multiple other things that could lead us down that that road, same kind of road that we're on right now. But I think what's interesting about these topics is all of them are things that people will take their connection with God that was meant to be with God. The Bible says that we're created in the image of God, which means we're supposed to reflect his likeness in everything we do, that our purpose in life uh, the, uh, the book of Romans tells us that we're our predestiny, our destiny before we were ever born was to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So we're supposed to be a reflection. That word image is icon. It's like a reflection to be a reflection of Christ. So we were created to be in God's image. But what happens is we disconnect from God. When we are not connected to our purpose in God, we will reconnect ourselves with various things. So if that's anxiety, then we begin to look like anxiety. If it's money, we begin to worship the God of money. And we begin to look like and reflect and talk like the things that money has to offer. If it's conflict, maybe that's what we're doing is we're plugging in and we're making these things essentially an idol our original connection we were supposed to have with God, we disconnect and we connect with something like sex. And then what happens is we begin to worship sex rather than sex being something that God created that we're supposed to be masters over through bearing his image and, and be something that's functional and that's a blessing and works in our life. It begins to run us and define us. And that's what happens. And that connection to whatever that is, is sin. It's the sin of idolatry, the connection between us and anything that is not God, where we're dependent upon that thing. That's really what sin is. So I hope this does demystify a bit some of these topics to know that all these things are really nothing other than an idol. It's something that we build our identities off of, our life off of, when we're disconnected from our true and original purpose. And I think that framing this series, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed uh, and inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That just basically means that the Bible is God's truly inspired word. As Christians, we have to believe this. There's no point in us even coming to church or telling people we're Christians or believing we're Christians if we don't have a basis for it. The Bible is our basis. 
And if we believe enough of it to say that we're Christians and to trust our eternal life with God based on what the Bible tells us about salvation, do we not also trust it? That it has enough wisdom to instruct us in matters of faith and practice in our daily life? We can't disregard what the Bible has to say about something like sex. So it's interesting today, closing out the series, I'm talking about sex. I don't know why sex is a subject that sometimes in church people get a little, you know, weird or quiet or something. Or like we don't like to talk about it a lot because it is a personal issue. But I think that the longer you don't talk about things in your family, for instance, the more awkward it gets. Uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember, I'm not trying to embarrass my daughter, but it's pretty cute. Uh, when, she was, when she was really little, we, the first time that we talked to Mia about sex, she was pretty, she was pretty young. We were all actually in our, our swimming pool. We're swimming and we told, you know, Amy and I told her, we didn't know how to have this conversation. It's like, it was our first kid. So we didn't know how to have, so we told her everything about it. And, and uh, she, she was standing there and she goes like this. She was, how old was she? She was like 10 or 11. She, she, she raised her hand, like we're in the pool. Oh, she was like eight. She raised her hand like this and there's no one there except us. I go, yes, Mia. Uh, uh, and she's like, when do you guys do this? She's like, she's like, like just the, que the questions that she had. We're like, well, we don't want to talk about that right now. But, like, uh, but I, I think the longer, that you, the longer that you delay the conversation, the more awkward it is. I think in families, in church, it's important for us to realize that if God created this and he wrote about it and told us what we need to know about it, then we can talk about it. I, I don't know, like, like I said, I don't know why. I know it's funny. Like uh, last night, we have some, some friends that are visiting us here today that we met last night at a, an amazing event uh, called Runway to Hope. Jude, Jude was in this event called Runway to Hope that's like, a, it raises money for cancer. It's a huge, I think there was over 2,000 people there at the Rosen. It was an amazing thing where Jude got to walk the runway and some clothes from Bloomingdale's and people were, he was like a model for, with all of some of the other uh, patients that were there. It was really a beautiful thing. But a family that we were sitting next to that was so sweet, so nice, we got to talk to them. We're talking about church and they started asking us, like, what do we do? And, you know, I said, well, we're pastors and we have, and they're like, really, you have a church? And they said, oh, we want to come visit. And I said, oh, that's great. And, and, and they're like, they're, both of them are so cool, but they're like asking us questions. They're like, well, what is, what's it like? You know, like if we came tomorrow, like what would you be talking about? I'd be like, I was like, well, well, tomorrow's kind of an interesting day. Uh, but I don't know why we, we, we do this with this particular subject, but I want to encourage you, no matter who you are, teenager, adult, whatever, th this is really an important uh, concept of getting a good view of what, what the Bible, what God has to say about this. So I have a prop over here. I don't know uh, that it's, it's, it's like, I think it's important. Uh, but before I get to this, let me ask you a quick question. This is really important. What is your favorite snack? I just want to change the subject. For a second. What, is your favorite, what is your favorite snack? Tell me your favorite snack. Takis? Okay. I like Takis. That's figs. The, 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 the fruit, like fig newtons. Oh, just figs. I like fig newtons though. I, I can eat like a whole sleeve of those things. A fig newton. What someone say? Pop-tarts? Oh, you said strawberry pop-tarts? Okay. Okay. I'm feeling that you. Okay. What else? What y'all got? What'd you say? Coconut tart? Okay, okay, I can rock with that. Pizza rolls? Okay. Well, since I'm your pastor, let me teach you something here today. <laughs> the, 
These are written about in the book of Revelation in a very hidden, very hidden passage that many people are unfamiliar with. But uh, for me, I want to thank Sam Procello, um, who was born in 1935, for creating the modern Oreo. The Oreos have been around for a long time, but he actually kind of revolutionized them and he created what's called double stuff. And double stuff is twice the fun. Uh, I love Oreos. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're, my, they're my absolute favorite. It's terrible. I could literally eat like a couple of these for breakfast. Like, I, like they're like substitute meals for me. Like I just love Oreos. I can have them anytime. So they're my favorite snack. When I think about what, if I were to elevate something, and put it on a pedestal, which I actually just did, uh, of what, what my favorite snack is, that's what it would be. That means that, you know, down here you've got, you know, chocolate chip cookies. Uh, you know, down here you've got like little Debbie oatmeal pies. I don't know, whatever. Like, it's like, it just goes down and down. But this is my favorite. Okay, so this is what I like when it comes to snacks, right? I think that that's... Uh, with that in mind, I would like to read Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is talking to people, and I want to read you something that he says that may sound very offensive. It's almost definitely going to be offensive, uh, because when we read this, we're like, well, he must not mean what I think it means. No, he actually does. Uh, okay, so check this out. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife. A lot of husbands are like, I got that down, buddy. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, and his own wife and his children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life cannot be my disciple. Weird. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all see it begin to mock him. What, what has he just said? He said, whoever doesn't hate their mom, their dad, their, their spouse, their kids, their friends, they cannot be my disciple. Then he says, who, then he starts going about someone building a house or building a tower how, if you only have $100,000 cash, you can't build a foyer for a $10 million facility. Bro, you ain't gonna have no place to sleep. You're gonna be sleeping in the foyer with no walls because you ain't gonna have enough money to finish it. That's what it's saying. It's saying don't start something that you can't finish. And he goes on, he says, what king going out to encounter another king in war does not sit down first and deliberate where, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? It means if you're about to confront another king in battle and you don't even know how many armies are out there, you're going to get close to him and see that you're outnumbered because you didn't do your homework. Then you're going to have to make a peace treaty rather than going and doing what you initially wanted to do. He says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? What does that mean that you have to hate your father and mother? You're like, that doesn't make sense with what I know about what Jesus says about loving people. We're not supposed to hate people. Well, let me ask you a quick question. If this is how much I love 
Oreos compared to all other snacks. And this is some kind of gauge uh, that, that we're looking at, some kind of graph or representation of my affection. Where should the love that I have for my family be in contrast to my love for Oreos? If this were, a, a, if, if we could just see up above this roof, how high should it be? How high should my love for my family be compared to this? What, what do you think is the right place to choose? Is it the roof? Someone tell me, like, we could talk about this. We can say it out loud. How do you, what do you think is appropriate? How high should it be, the contrast? If this is how much I love Oreos, how high should the, the love that I have for my family be? What do you think? The sky? Okay, someone said the sky. Someone said the moon. Someone said infinity. Interesting. The sun. Someone said the sun. That's millions of miles away. So that's interesting. So we look, this is just, you know, a couple of feet tall. But you're saying that the love that I should have for my family should be to the sun or infinitely higher than this. Okay? So that shows us the contrast of what's really, really important when we compare it to a preference, to something that we just like, something that we prefer. I prefer Oreos. Okay? So my love for my family, you're telling me, and, and, and just being sensible, we know that as human beings, that if we took Oreos off and we put here on this pedestal things that are actually important in life, like commitment, love, dedication, family, humanity, people that are living, breathing family members, and we put them here, we contrast that with everything else that we have in our life, and we put it up on a pedestal in life. What Jesus is saying is that your love for me has to be so infinite compared to whatever, even your family that you put on this pedestal, that it has to seem like it's the sun or has, it has to seem like the love you have for me is infinite. And what it's gonna do is show you what actual love is that in contrast to the love that you have for me, even the love you have for your family will appear like hate compared to that. It doesn't mean hate your family. It means that the difference between the love that you have for your family and the love that you have for me is so massive that it will appear like hate. So that means then that whatever this pedestal is that we've put these on, there's something below that. And we've got the love that we have for God up there. You say, boy, it really puts in perspective the love I should have for my family. But I think what it really puts in perspective is the love you're supposed to have for a preference. See, I think when we put Christ, the, the, what we're supposed to bring to Christ, when we know him and we give our lives to him, and he goes on to say, he says, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It means whatever is here in your life is just something that you like or you want or you prefer or comes right out of your heart. Number one, whatever that is compared to your family, your friends, it's already a joke. We just talked about that. So he's saying you bring all of that to me and you've got to relinquish it all to even know me. It means that coming to Christ requires self-analysis. It means you don't accidentally do it. 
You got to think about it or else this wouldn't make any sense to us. It's saying we have to know the things that we want to hold on to. And those are the very things that we have to be willing to let go of. We have to know the things that are proclivities to us. We have to know the things that we're afraid someone will find out about before we can let them go. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 tells us the difference between knowing the love of God and what our life looked like when we were holding on to those things. It says, don't you know that doing such things have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who live immoral lives, these are the things that we held on to at one time that defined us, that made us who we were. Those who lived immoral lives, those who are idol worshipers. We talked about idol worshiping today. Adulterers or homosexuals will have no share in his kingdom. Neither will thieves or greedy people, drunkards, slanderers, robbers. Think about how massive that net is that Jesus is casting, saying that if you are these things and you hold on to these things, you will never be able to trade those things in and take my love instead. You're going to try to drag these things into the kingdom with you and you can't. And before we start focusing on one and, and not focusing on the other, it's a pretty big net greed. It's pretty big. People that get drunk, that's pretty big. Sexual sin of, of multiple kinds. Slanderers, robbers. So we have to understand that before we can even know Christ, we have to be willing to lay these things down. And as Paul says in verse 11 right here, it says, there was a time when some of you were just like that, but now your sins are washed away and you are set apart for God. And he has accepted you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God have done for you. It means that God loves us at our lowest. He loves us when we're at our worst. And I think the way you're like, well, what does this have to do with sex? Well, I think what it has to do with is that we have some faulty premises. And I think that culture likes to talk to a Christian and say, well, I don't agree with your stance on this particular subject, whatever that subject is that we choose to talk about, whether it's marriage or whatever sex, immorality, whatever. They'll choose a subject. Here's my thought when, when we talk about the things that we disagree on. It's like, well, let's pause for a second on the thing that you, you say that we don't see eye to eye on, and let's talk about eternity. What do you think about eternity? What do you think about people that live a life that's not pleasing to God? What do you think happens to them? Most people will say, well, I think God understands each person's heart and he's, he's big enough. He just lets things go. Well, that's really not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid a price for sin and it is only through Christ that we're able to have forgiveness of sin. He says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Then you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. So the Bible tells a much different story. And most of those people think that when you die, you just either go to sleep forever. Or if you're like Hitler, you have like really uncomfortable sleep or something. I don't know, like you're having a crick in your neck or something like that. Like they, they just don't think there's a punishment or a reward eternally. 
They just think you just kind of end. So they have a messed up view of where this is going. If you have a messed up view of where it's going, you probably have a faulty premise of where it started. So we get hung up on what's in the middle. Of course, we're going to disagree on what's in the middle if we don't agree about where it's going. And definitely if we don't agree about where it started. So I think in order to have a proper view of sex, I think we have to agree and understand that the God of the universe created us. He is a being that is alive. He is, he thinks, he designed, he created in eternity all things. He has a purpose for our life. He allowed his word to be written by human beings that was passed down through history that his Holy Spirit was upon. And this book is alive. This book tell us, tells us everything we know about matters of faith and practice. I think if you start off with the wrong premise, you're going to end up at the wrong destination. I know that like, don't ever at, please, I'll just destroy your life. If you ever said, hey, Pastor Jeff, can you come help me build this chair from Ikea? I'm going to mess it up. I'm, I'm a terrible, I am the worst chair builder in the world. Why? I always mess up the first step. I always end up grabbing something that looks like it fits and I'll put it in here and I'll start finishing everything and I'm reading the instruction. I get to uh, number seven and it says, take the dowel rod and insert it into there. And I'm like, where's the dowel rod? When I look at the diagram, it's the first thing that I already built everything on and it doesn't exist anymore. I messed up step one. How many people know if you messed up step one, you can't finish the chair? When Amy was, uh, you know, living in South Carolina over 20 years ago, I, I went to visit her one time and it was like late at night and I, I'm on 75 and I stopped at a gas station. This is before like phones and GPS and all that stuff. And I was asking someone if there's a shortcut to where I'm going. They said, yeah, go down here for about 40 minutes. And when you see 17, turn left on 17, then you'll see it at about 45 miles from there. And so I remember I was taking, and so I'm, I get in my car, I, I get gas, I'm driving off, I'm listening to music, and I'm driving around I'm like, my gosh, where is this place? I drove for two hours. And as I'm driving for two hours, just all of a sudden I look at the road and I was going south on 75. I went the wrong direction. I was coming back toward Orlando. How many people know if you start out driving in the wrong direction with the first instruction. There's no way for you to end up at your destination that you wanted to go to. And in the same way, when it comes to the Bible, there are some basic principles. Genesis 1:26 says, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air. Verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. You say, what a beautiful poetic language. It's what happened. That's not poetic language. That is actual language of what happened. The, the, the rule of interpretation for the Bible is that we only interpret something as poetic if it can't happen. And this is what happened. It's saying that God created us in his own image. Verse 27 says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2.20 says, so man gave names to all the livestock. Verse 21 says, so the Lord God, uh, but, but no 
But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took on one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You say, I don't like that. Well, I mean, it's really, I mean, there's a lot of people don't like what the Bible has to say. I understand that. I understand that we live in a culture that hates what we're talking about right now. As a matter of fact, culture is doing everything possible to try to change this narrative. As Christians, it's not our job to apologize for it. Say, well, I'm sorry, I, I could have come up with a better way than this, but this is what God wants. No, it's not that. It's to appreciate who Christ is and to appreciate the power of his word and to learn how to love what God has to say about our lives. As challenging, as difficult it is, and to communicate this message to people with dignity and honor. Not to bash people and to hurt people and to make people feel alienated, but to demonstrate a kingdom culture that shines his goodness in such a way that people say, I've never seen people like that. They're honorable. They live for God. They, 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 there's something different and distinct about them. But Jesus echoed exactly what this was talking about in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I don't like it still. Well, what do you, what's your opinion then? Where do you get your idea? Because this, this is what the Bible is. The Bible has to say this. But where do you get your idea? TikTok? Is that, is that a great location? Wikipedia? Because that's never wrong, right? You know, so, so, I mean, where are you getting your information? And also, where is that going? Your philosophy, where does that take you? Oh, just be nice. Just be a good person. Do whatever you like. You're not hurting anybody. Where is that taking you? If you're being judged by the God of the universe, here are the standards that he judges us by. And we have to start with the most basic premise that the creator made us in his image. And Jesus goes on to say, no longer two, but one flesh. That sounds very intimate. That sounds really intimate. I mean, it is. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about sex specifically. That doesn't sound like he's like, oh man, it's gonna be really fun when you hook up in a club on a Friday night and you become one flesh. It's gonna be great. No, of course not what he's talking about. It's way deeper than that. He's not going, oh, wait, you know, you guys gotta get tender someday when it comes out. It's a great way to become one flesh with people. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something way more serious. And people say that gender, sex, marriage, it's all a construct uh, it's just something that people make up, that it's a construct. Well, I agree that it's a construct, but I believe it was constructed by God because I believe the Bible. I believe these are terms that the Bible uses clearly. And I do understand the propensity in culture when we want to hurt no one's feelings, we want everyone to feel. I get this, but that's really not the MO of, of God's word. The Bible has nothing to do with hurting people's feelings. What it's got to do with is 
dead people spiritually that Jesus gave his life to bring back alive again. That, that's the purpose of God's word is to give hope to humanity. So I know that's, a, that's just a lot to kind of like lay down as a foundation for what I'm gonna talk about. I'm gonna try to get through the rest of this pretty quickly. Um, what, is the, what is the modern problem? We said modern problems, ancient solutions. What is the modern problem with sex? I think there are three prevailing worldviews when it comes to sex that have permeated culture. I think we all have some version of this that we struggle with. I think the first version is, would be called realism. And realism is the idea that sex is just a basic instinct that we have. Some people reduce it down to a very animalistic desire. Uh, it's just something in us. And that realist kind of mentality says, we make a big deal out of sex when it's not really a big deal. It's something that people should do when they want, how they want, where they want. No one should say anything about it. it, it you, know, you know, it's just a, an, an animal-like in, instinct. It's an appetite. And I don't think it's very fair to say that it is an appetite. I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but I think that's one view about sex, the realist view. I think the, the Platonism view is the view uh, that... Plato, you know, sort of it was known for. That's why it's called that. And it's more of that Greek philosophy that the, the real human, the real person is the person you are on the inside. And that view, even though it's not a Christian view, reduces sex to something that is only for procreation and that you need to learn how to rule over it in order to have the best life. And a lot of Christians have developed that view that sex is only for procreation and that you master it, and it's this base instinct, and it's not really anything more than that. I think there are some people in this world that have that view, but I think the most prevailing view that is wrong is romanticism. And romanticism is what we see in every commercial that we watch. It's what we see in every TV show, every movie that we watch. We literally live in a society that is obsessed with romantic love. We idolize romantic love. We think it is the most important thing. We think it is the highest degree of self-expression, of creativity, of personal preference. We idolize romantic love in every way imaginable. You know, the, the realism sees sex as a biological drive. The second one sees it as a necessary evil, but this way sees it as a way to be yourself and to find yourself. And... I would just like to tell you that as appealing as that may be when we watch The Notebook or whatever it is that we watch, it's a very low view of sex compared to the Bible. It's a very, very low view. Some say it's mostly for pleasure. Some views say it's mostly for children. And this view says it's mostly for love. And you can tell when people have that uh, you know, romanticism view of sex because they'll look down on someone if they have sex with a prostitute because that was for money. But if they have sex with whoever for love, they say, oh, that's okay. And that's sort of what people are driven by. They say, it's okay if you, I'm saving it for someone that I love. And, we, and people act as if that's a noble thing or that's understood in God's eyes. But, but the Bible doesn't really say anything about having sex just because you love someone. The only thing that the Bible talks about and the only scenario that the Bible creates is a man and a woman that are joined in matrimony 
in the, the, the spiritual covenant of marriage, that's the only scenario that the Bible talks about. So that, that leaves a lot of room for like, what else is there? Like, what if that's not what I've viewed it, the way I, not the way I viewed it? Well, I want to encourage you today that the Bible's view of sex is the highest view of sex, the highest view of sex that any philosophy ever remotely ever attempted to have. When the Bible came out with its views on sex, even singleness, this is important, that its view of marriage, sex, and singleness so far surpassed any culture in history. It's unbelievable that when we look at the Bible's view of marriage, in sex, it's higher than realism. It's not just an appetite. The Bible teaches that sexual desires, that the appetite of sex itself is actually destructive. It's not just something that we can compare to food. It's something that is absolutely morally destructive. That if we allow it to go to its furthest end, the Bible even tells us that when we have sex outside of marriage, that we're sinning against ourselves. It's different than other sins. We're sinning against ourselves, So we know that sexual appetites outside of the, the mutuality and commitment and love of marriage, of a holy communion is crazy. Uh, it, it just destroys our life. And it's not the same. Let's not say it's like an appetite. You know, we would think it was crazy if we were talk about, talking about a culture that was obsessed with paying money to go into a room and watch people eat a steak dinner. I mean, who would do that? It's, it's insane. Like you, you can't imagine people that would pay money to watch a person eat a steak dinner, but yet it, with pornography, people are watching an act. And it's one of the most gripping industries in America that's destroying lives. It's destroying people's souls. And people are, so it's an appetite, but it's not the same as other appetites. So that's important to know. The Bible gives it a much higher view than realism. The Bible gives a much higher view than Platonism, that it's just something that you have to control. As a matter of fact, it's not just for procreation. The Bible tells us that sex is good, that God saw everything he made and it was good, that in the confines of marriage, and with that long-term commitment, that ability to, to join yourself wholly and completely to someone where you have levels of trust and care and compassion and kindness for someone. That's what lets the walls down that allows sex to be great in marriage. But outside of that, that platonic view that it's, I mean, have, by the way, if you say that the Bible doesn't teach about sex, have you ever read Song of Solomon? If you say yes, you could be lying. Because that book is very explicit. That book is very much about a husband and a wife that are talking about each other's bodies. They're talking about how great it is to have sex with each other, how much they desire each other. They cannot wait to see each other. I mean, it'll make you blush if you read it in public. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passionate book that shows us that sex is beyond simply just for procreation. So even in that prevailing worldview of Platonism, they say, oh, well, sex has to be kept under control. It's really for procreation. The Bible has a higher view than that, right? But I want to tell you that the Bible has an even higher view than just romanticism. Because contrary to the romantic view, the Bible teaches that love and sex are not primary for individual happiness. See, we don't, that we don't get married 
And we don't have sex just for our personal expression. That marriage and sex are far greater than that. That the primary reason that we should ever marry someone, according to scripture and according to the Bible, is that the two of us can have a greater impact on the kingdom of God together than we could apart. And if you're married, now, I do think that you love that person. I think it's very important to love that person and our love for that person. But I don't think that love is all the things that romanticism tells us it is. I don't think that someone's attractiveness has to be the primary reason why you marry someone. I think according to scripture that the Bible tells us we can see someone's faithfulness. I'm gonna tell you something. It's pretty amazing to see someone that you're interested in that loves God. Someone that's passionate about God. I'm going to tell you this right now. I think my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. But during this season that we've been in, there have been times when we're going through what we're going through with, with Jude that I've wanted to quit. And if I hadn't heard her praying in the other room, I think I would have. So her attractiveness had nothing to do with the thing that maybe kept me alive for a few more minutes. And what do I mean? I mean, we, we reach points in our life where we want to quit. We want to give up. And someone's hotness is not going to help you through that moment. So I think there's a lot more to marriage. Anyone alive today? I think there's a lot more to marriage. I think there's a lot more to marriage. And the, the biblical reason, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with those Greek terms for love that are used in the New Testament. Uh, phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, that, that means brotherly love. Storge. S-T-O-R-G-E, storge is familial love. So you have the kind of love that you have for your friends. You have the kind of love that you share for your family or your siblings, your parents, things like that. Uh, you have eros love, which is only mentioned about sex. So it's not mentioned about God and us. So it's absent from the, present, from, from the relationship between God and people, which either means it's the highest form of love that's possible because it's absent for us or either it's the lowest because it's only present in marital structures in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? But agape, the kind of love that makes room for everyone that loves at all times, no matter what anyone has done, that's what we are called to have. So in marriage, we're supposed to have all of those loves, which is a much higher, much higher view than romanticism. Because romanticism tells us somebody is not for you. They're not behind you. They don't compliment you enough. They don't do this. You get rid of them. But the Bible tells us that we got to make room for people that are hurting and that are struggling and that need help. The Bible tells us to forgive and to pray for people, to never give up on them. And we need that in marriage. Because marriage is two people that have made a decision together that they're going to shine for God greater together than they could separately. So... What is the biblical view of sex? I'm going to give you three quick points and then I'm going to close. I think that the biblical view of sex is number one. I think it's a sacrament. Okay. And that word sacrament, we're used to the sacraments in, in the Protestant world, the non-Catholic world. We're used to thinking of sacraments um, as baptism and communion. Those are the two sacraments that, as Christians that we participate in. Uh, baptism is a sacrament that points to the covenant 
that we experience with the new birth of the old life that we had before Christ coming up in the new life, that is the sacrament that leads us into the new life. It's a demonstration that we experience and kind of relive the covenant that we experienced in Christ through baptism. If, you've, if you're here and you've never been baptized, please get baptized at our next baptism. It's incredible. It's an amazing, important, significant thing for us to do. Okay, so then communion, we just did it today. Pastor Amy led us in a beautiful communion. A communion is the sacrament that goes back to the covenant that we experienced through the death of Jesus, through his body and his blood. And when we participate in the sacrament, it points back to the covenant. Okay, now let me just point this out real quick. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9 says, now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, it's like he's reading our minds because it's a very similar uh, question that we would ask today. He says, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? This seems like the question that everyone would ask today. Paul answers, certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Sexual what? That means that the world is full of messed up sex. You say, well, what is messed up sex? We could get the complicated answer and it would take a long time, but the clearer more concise answer is any sex that does not fit with the kind of sex that we just discussed is sexual disorder according to the Bible. So it says that, mar that marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. And that phrase for sexual disorder is the Greek word pornea. Obviously, pornography comes from that word, but the word pornea means sexual sin which means fornication, which is having sex before you're married, or adultery, which is having sex while you're married or married to, or having sex with someone that is married. There's really not, it's not, one is not worse than the other. According to the Bible, it just, all of it is pornea. It's all pornea. Adultery is different than fornication, but they're both pornea. Does that make sense? So they're both sexual sin. So, it says the marriage place must be a place of humility. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. You don't see too many people with a magnet on their refrigerator that says that. It's a decision to serve one another, whether in bed or out. Marriage is serving that's literally what it is. And it says abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it. And if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times, then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understand commanding these periods of abstinence, abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. So let me kind of summarize this, what I just read. Is it good to have sex? Yes, but in a specific context. What context? Marriage. What is marriage? It's the highest covenantal relationship on earth between a man and a woman. Marriage 
is the covenant. What is a covenant? It's a blood deal. It's something you do not back out of. It is so much more than just something physical, but it is the deal. Marriage is the covenant. Sex is the sacrament that reminds us of the covenant. In the same way that communion is the sacrament that reminds us of the body and the blood of Jesus when we are commanded to take communion on a regular basis, it reminds us of the more powerful covenant Sex, and I'm not saying that they should, we should add sex to the Protestant, you know, sacraments. That's not the point, that it's baptism, you know, communion and sex. I'm just saying that sex is like a, a sacrament in that it points to a greater covenant. And Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. he said, anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit at him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought or don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you, even now, are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we don't have to be straightened out later on. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face fiery confrontation later. What he is saying is that if you are considering taking communion and you do not have a covenant with Christ, don't do it. Don't partake of the sacrament if you do not value the covenant. Do we see in this analogy of people eating and drinking communion who just don't care about Christ at all? He is saying you are literally bringing hell into your life by devaluing your spitting on Jesus. If that's what we do when participating in the sacrament without acknowledging the covenant, then what in the world happens to us when we have sex? and participate in the sacrament of sex without the covenant of marriage that's protecting us. What are we doing to ourselves? We're living in a broken culture where people are so backward and can't even figure out basic principles of life. Why? Because we're joining ourselves with people that we're not married to. And it's hurting us. It's confusing us. It's distancing us. It's alienating us. Christians are to choose between marriage and singleness. That's really the choices that were presented biblically. Marriage and singleness. And we're not to do it for the modern reasons that everyone gives, which is personal fulfillment. That's really not what we're supposed to do as Christians, nor for the traditional motive of a family. Some people like to make that choice. Do I want a family? Do I not want a family? That's really not what the Bible teaches us. We're actually supposed to marry or remain single on the basis of what state makes us better 
as a sign of God's kingdom. That's the primary reason that we're supposed to be married. I'm sorry, I know that's not the notebook. I know, I know that you're not sitting there thinking, man, this is exactly what I want to hear because it's not what we watch on Netflix. But there's power here. Not, it's not based on looks. It's not based on humor. It's not based on status. It's based on who we can be for the kingdom together. You can marry someone that is not what the world says is the perfect spouse, but they can become something else in Christ and you can grow into something together. That's what we're looking to do. And think about, think about this. Not only is marriage a sacrament, it's something that God created. Point number two would be something that God created to bring about family. Think about when you're married and you are the husband and the wife and the father and the mother that God has called you to be, to raise children, to understand how significant it is to have a father, to have a mother. It has to be said that in our world, we're living in a world where the nuclear family has been completely dissolved. And it really starts with our views about God because our views about God and where we started affect our views about sex, which affect our views about commitment and relationships. We've got kids that grow up with no opportunity to have parenting from both sides, or it's so broken or shattered that they become broken and shattered. We have to go to a place as Christians where we demonstrate commitment and faithfulness. I know when I look at this group of people that's here with me, there are people that I've walked through and we have walked through challenging things with who have made the toughest choices to stay together as families, but have done it for the honor of God. And, for their, and to be that kind of example for their family. And God will honor that. So sex is something that God created as the purpose to make families. I think that's really powerful and it's beautiful. But 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9 says, sometimes that's not to leave out everyone that doesn't fit in that narrative of what a husband and a wife is. Because Paul says this right here. Paul doesn't really go into a lot of detail about his personal sexuality. And what I mean by that is I'm not suggesting something. I'm just saying that that's not the point he's trying to make when he brings up uh, his position on marriage. He simply brings up marriage and then he brings up himself, which he says, sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. All the married people say, amen. <laughs> There are some things about being single that's way simpler than being married. Uh, the, the autonomy that you have, the freedom that you have, you can watch whatever you want. You can leave your towel on the floor. Uh, there's a lot of things that are you know, significant about that. We, we trade one thing for another. But he says, but celibacy, by the way, I will mention that singleness and celibacy are two different things. Paul is not just promoting singleness here. He's pr pr promoting singleness with celibacy. Is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some and the gift of the married life to others. So what I love about this is he elevates and gives dignity and honor to the single life. It means that if you are here today and you are single, you don't, as a matter of fact, if I had more time in just a couple of verses down, he said, hey, if you're single, don't go searching for someone that's married. If, or, excuse me, don't go searching to get married. If you're married, don't take all the pleasure in life out of the fact that you're married. Find other things to be happy about. He's basically saying, stop wanting all the things that you don't have. He's saying, if you're single, you're okay. 
You can be a great blessing for the kingdom. You can build powerful, incredible, deep, personal, interconnected relationships that have unbelievable God value and, and build the kingdom. And they can be lifelong relationships. Very personal, very powerful. That's an incredibly high view of celibacy. He says, I do though tell the unmarried and widows that singleness might well be the best thing for them as it had been for me. So he's that kind of suggesting to people, don't get married if you don't have to. He's like, he's like don't get married. If you, if you have the gift of singleness, stay single and just live for God. You can do a lot more for God sometimes when you're single. If it's not the right person or if you just couldn't get along with someone and, and you, you're able to have that gift. Some people like, I'm a little bit weird. I can go to a movie by myself. I can go to a restaurant by myself. Like sometimes I'll be in a restaurant sitting there and someone will come up and go, are you okay? I'm like, well, I was until you came here. I was trying to, I was trying to eat. You know, you just bothered me right there. Like I, I'm okay like that. I don't know. Some people can handle that. So, so he says, he says, but if they can't manage their desires and emotions, they should by all means go ahead and get married. The difficulties of marriage are preferable by far to a sexually tortured life as a single. This is saying that some people can be single. If you're living your life as a single person, just constantly tortured with the thoughts of sex, and you're unable to control that, maybe the marriage life is more important for you, in which case you would need to find a believer that understands who you are, that has a personal relationship with God that's strong enough to understand who you are and the two of you can be a greater benefit to the kingdom married than you could separately. That's what the Bible says. And I think finally, uh, the last thing is I think that sex, number three would be that, that it's, a, um, it's a sacrament. I think it's something that God created uh, to create families. And I think number three, the final thing would be it's a completely submersive experience. And that's why it's meant for marriage. It is the joining and giving completely of yourself. That is why it is so unfathomable. People go out and meet someone in a hookup culture and they sleep with them. They give them everything that they have to give. They give the things that are the most intimate, personal things about them that are supposed to be reserved for someone that knows that you know and trust and that would never humiliate you, would never say anything hurtful to you. They care too much. They've got too much invested. But people are giving these, this to strangers. And it's, it's so scary that we have to remember it's our heart, it's our soul, it's our body, it's our spirit. And so I think that these principles of what the Bible has to say about sex should really guide our thinking when it comes to relationships, when it comes to marriage, and how we proceed moving forward. I know this is not, it doesn't answer every question in the world, but I do think it's a, an important uh, thing in this series when talking about modern problems, ancient solutions to give a biblical overview of sex. So I hope this encourages you. I hope it lifts you up. I hope it's a good base for you and your family, something good for you to talk about and engage with uh, and to build your life from. And I just pray in most things when we struggle or looking for answers, just do it humbly with humility. Talk to leaders, talk to pastors, talk to people that you trust and um, get God's word in your life. And the Bible says his word will never return void. Can someone say amen today? Amen. Amen. Well, I want to pray with uh, everyone that's here. Pray with those that are watching online today. Um, I know that God cares for you. He loves you. And the scripture that we read about, those are things that we used to be. Maybe that's 
something that you've been hung up on, what you used to be. Or maybe you say, it's not what I used to be, it's what I am. Because I've never given my life to God. I've never surrendered those things. Maybe when you look at this and you think about the things that you hold so high, not this, but the values, the identities, the things that you've placed on this pedestal in your life. Jesus is saying, I'm demanding that your love for me be so infinite compared to that, that you gotta let that go. And we have such a hard time with that. I know that. But I will tell you that this God of whom the Bible says, the angels approach in heaven. He is so radiant and magnificent that they cannot even look at him. And when they look at him, the Bible says they look up, they go, God, oh, Oh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and his radiant. They look, oh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. Do you think that we are ever going to get to heaven when it comes to sex or our identity or anything and look at God and when we see him go, oh, I need to have sex, right? No, my God, his presence, his faithfulness, his goodness will so far out overshadow any other thing that we can comprehend. It will not be a sacrifice for us. That's what we're trading when we come to Christ. We're laying down the old life. We step into this new life of faith. That's what God is asking you to do today. But you have to admit that you're a sinner, that you can't fix it yourself. That's the first prerequisite. We don't like to do that either. I don't like to do that. Because that means I'm admitting that I'm helpless in some area. I am because I know that my standards do not live up to his. Jesus is the only one that lived up to the standard that I cannot live up to. And I don't care if you grew up in church, if you've been to a thousand churches, if you've never thought about what I'm talking about right now, you don't know Christ. Because unless you've traded what I'm talking about, you don't have Christ. You have to lay those things down. So I'll ask everyone that's in this room to bow your heads and close your eyes if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never traded those things that seem impossible to lay at his feet. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is in this room, moving online today, I believe he's just moving. And I believe that if you're willing to lay down the things that you hold high, things that have even defined you in some way, that you thought you could never let go of, maybe it's mistakes that you couldn't let go of. Whatever it is, if that's you today, you say, I need to lay my old life down and invite Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to be saved today. I need Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. No one looking around. When I count to three, I'm gonna ask you to lift your hand straight up over your head. Online, I'm gonna ask you to lift your hand and to type in that chat. I'm lifting my hand, I need Jesus. I'm lifting my hand, I need Jesus. On three, hands up all over this room. One, the Bible says now is the time of salvation. Two, I believe the power of the Holy Spirit is moving in this room for this very moment. Three, hands up all over the building, if that's you. Hands going up in every single section, every single, that's actually dozens and dozens of people all over this room. I believe hands are being lifted online right now. God is moving in this room. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hands everywhere, everywhere. Amen. Could you pray this prayer out loud? All the people that have your hands lifted, could you say, I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I'm turning my back on the old life, walking into a new life with you, Lord Jesus. I lay everything down at your feet. I carry my cross and it's heavy, but I know, Lord, that you will help me 
Your presence will be with me and you will guide me every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, could you give the Lord a great praise today? Amen. Thank you for being here. This concludes the teaching. If you'd like to support what God is doing here at City of Life, click on the Give button at www.col.tv or text a dollar amount to the number 855-997-6900. We hope you'll join us again.